Church, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. Hear the voice of the risen Lord today. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Church, you can be seated. Thanks, Adam. Before we dive into that passage, I wanted to remind you that we have our first ever elder forum tonight at five. So, you know, at the end of family night, we typically have Q&A with uh, the elders. It seemed like there were more questions than we could get around to. Uh, there's there's no, no crisis, no, nothing going on bad that I know of, but we just want to create opportunities for anybody. You don't even have to be a member. Uh, this could be your first day here. Just it does whatever people want to talk about. It could be church, theology, life, whatever. We just just wanted to have that time where you can come, and it'll be in here this evening at 5. All right, Matthew 17. In studying this passage this week, uh, I read about a painting that if I were more cultured, I probably would have already known about, by Raphael, you know, the, the Italian Renaissance artist, and the painting is of the Transfiguration, which we looked at last week, and this passage this week. And as you look at his painting of the Transfiguration, at the top, you of course see Jesus and Peter, James, and John, you see Moses and Elijah, and all the colors are bright colors, white colors. I guess white's not a color, but you get the idea. Bright colors. And, and everything looks glorious and blissful at the top of this painting. But when you, like as your eyes go down from the top to the bottom, things get darker. And, and all the, the faces at the bottom, they are, they're confused. There's fear. There's even some things that are clearly demonic going on down there. And when the more I kind of looked at this painting and, and you know, I I'm pretty familiar with the passage I preached last week and studying this one. I realized like what a great depiction Raphael made of what's going on in this passage because, because while at the top of the mountain last week, you do have something that's glorious things are not going, to, going well down at the bottom with the other disciples. I mean, really, what the feeling you have as Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down off the mountain is like that of Moses coming down off Mount Sinai, where he had just been in the very presence of God, receiving the law, shining radiant from the glory of God, and he comes down, and what were the people doing? Worshiping a golden calf that they had, that they had made themselves. 
And so, I mean, the the disappointment that you feel as you read about Moses coming off that mountain, really the the same kind of disappointment is here. The story is in all the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and they all together, they, they show this contrast or this juxtaposition of the glory going on on top of the mountain and the unbelief happening at the bottom of the mountain. And so this passage is a passage about unbelief, or to state it on the opposite, it's, it's a statement about faith, even if in the passage there's a lack thereof. So I want to walk through this passage, and I want us to have an eye on faith. And specifically, I want us to see the barrier to our faith, the source of our faith, and then the power of our faith. So first, the barrier to our faith. The barrier to our faith is our own sin. And to see this, we really have to look at the plight of this poor boy. So you have this boy who, uh, when you put all the different, you know, accounts together, you get a pretty full picture. And Matthew helps us to see some of the things, but Luke, the physician, helps us to see others, and Mark does the same. And so when you put them together, you see that this boy, he... He was convulsing, he was grinding his teeth, he was foaming at the mouth, and physicians for hundreds of years have looked at this and said almost certainly what we're looking at is epilepsy. And then on top of that, Mark tells us that this boy, uh, he could not, he was mute, he couldn't speak, he was deaf, and then all three authors tell us that he was demon-possessed. So, I mean, this is a serious situation, and your heart can't but break for this father. I mean, this would be horrible if this was anybody's child, but he says, this is my only son, and which would be even harder in any culture, but especially there when, when so much of your security and your legacy and your family line depended on sons. This is his only son. And the description of this boy really is a great picture of what sin does to us. I mean, sin brings misery. Now, I'm not saying that this boy did anything to merit this more than the, than the rest of us. And clearly he didn't because the father says he's been like this since birth. But it is a, albeit extreme, a logical result of what it looks like to live in a fallen world. Things like this happen because we live in a fallen world. And as captive as this boy is to his ailments, we are just as captive to our sin. Even if we don't see physical symptoms of it, we have spiritual symptoms. You know, we choose to to walk down a path of our own making to seek glory and success and pleasure and satisfaction in places that are actually self-destructive to us, both physically and spiritually. A self-destructive is casting yourself into a fire or into the water, which was exactly what this boy was doing. And this is not the way that humans are designed to live. Humans are uniquely and specially made in the image of God. And so what's going on here in this boy's plight, we see something in his situation that is eroding at, that is tearing apart, that is marring the enemy, sorry, the image that this boy was created in. And we have to know our enemy likes that, that he relished in what is going on. You know, we have a real enemy. Scripture calls him Satan, and, and Satan tried to go after the throne. Long ago, we read in Scripture that he and a third of his angelic host tried to take over the heavenly realms. 
That didn't go well for them. They failed miserably, so God cast those, that those angels down here on earth, cursed them, and they are what we now call demons. And I do believe that demons are real, that they, that they really exist. We can't see them. Most of the time, I think there are exceptions, but they're real. And in the Christian faith, you know, we can go to one extreme or the other. You know, one extreme is going to see a demon behind every bush. And, and you know, every mental illness calls for an exorcism. I, I knew a guy that grew up, he's a buddy of mine, he grew up in a small church in Mississippi, and his, uh, his Sunday, he asked a Sunday school teacher, tell me, what about dinosaurs? You know, where did dinosaurs fit in the Bible? And the Sunday school teacher said, well, Satan came and distributed those bones to confuse us. You know, I, I think all of those things kind of overstate what's going on in, in the spiritual realm, but a lot, of, a lot of the faith can go the other way as well and just kind of act like there are no evil forces that we can't see at play. And, and so that would be not only a naive way to live the Christian life, it would be a very dangerous way to live the Christian life. I mean, Paul says very specifically in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I believe these things are real. I have seen things overseas that I cannot explain apart from what Paul is saying and things that would truly give most people nightmares. I, I just, they are real, they really exist. But these demonic forces that exist, they, they want to go head to head with God, but they know they can't. That didn't work out well. So their plan is to go, to go after the next best thing, which is his image bearers. That's what the demonic forces want to do. And if we do not have the spirit of God inside us, we are, we are just as exposed to these spiritual forces as this poor boy in this text. But it's not just a problem for unbelievers. Our own sin can hinder our faith even as believers. It can be a barrier even, for, even as a believer. And I, I think I could flesh this out a number of ways, but there's something specific going on in this passage. It's gonna lead me down one route. Because in this passage, these disciples are choosing to walk in their own power and not on the reliance of God. So, you know, to give a New Testament way of saying that, they're choosing to walk out of their own flesh, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. So remember, this father, he brought his boy first to the disciples, and they couldn't heal the boy. But back in chapter 10, Jesus had given them the power and authority to, to, uh, to deal with demons inside of people. And, and they had had some success in doing that. So now they come, and it's the same situation. They do the same thing, whatever that was, and it doesn't work. And so they're going to Jesus, and they're saying, why did it not work this time? And Jesus says in verse 19 that they can't cast those demons out because of their lack of faith. Now, as an aside, I think it's kind of funny, when you have, uh, uh, you know, the prosperity preachers doing a healing in a service, and, and it doesn't take, you know, the person's not healed, who do they blame for that healing not working? They, they blame it on a lack of faith on the, per, on the part of the participant, the, the person looking to be healed. Well, here, the indictment is not on the person who wants to be healed. The indictment is on the person who is trying to do the healing. But you're never going to hear a televangelist, you know, uh, uh, prosperity preacher teach that part of the verse. All right, I digress. All right, here's what I think happened. 
they had cast out a demon before. They, they didn't feel like they needed Jesus to do this thing that they had already done. So they, they went to this boy, they did whatever it is they had done before, it didn't work, and they were confused. Because they, they weren't feeling like they needed Jesus to, to do this thing, they were trying to do it of their own power. And that's not how the Christian life works. So yesterday I got to do a, a wedding. Many of you know Steve and Cindy Pilling. They're, they've been here longer than I have. Their daughter Hope got married. And, and as I was kind of preparing the, the wedding, I was thinking back to my first ever wedding that I did. And a lot of you know I, I have always struggled with anxiety in public speaking, which is crazy that this is what God would have me do. And so I already have that anxiety. And I think a wedding is the most stressful thing that a young minister can do. <laughs> like the, the, there's so many pieces to it. In some cases, the mom has been planning this for 25 years and you feel like if I mess up, it's just gonna blow this perfect image that she has been dreaming about, maybe the bride too. So that's stressful. On top of that, this wedding was for Angela, my wife, Angela's brother. So I'm still fairly new to the family and I've got all my in-laws and her cousins and everybody there. I'm just so nervous. And then to add one more piece to it, one of the groomsmen was Eli Manning. <laughs> because Eli and my brother-in-law, Angela's brother, they're good friends. And so all week I'm just trying to, to play it cool. And, and he, had, he had just, be, I think he just got become MVP for the first time in Super Bowl. And, and so, but like we're walking into restaurants, people are taking pictures of, of him, like everybody knew who he was. And it, it, I was just trying to play it cool all week. We get through the wedding and finally I'm like, I can relax. And if I'm honest, I still really wanted a signature. <laughs> and so I felt like, I felt like this, is, this is the moment. I can do it, I've been with him for a few days, this will work, but I wanna be cool. So what I'm gonna do is I wanna, I'm gonna get a football, I bought a football and put a Sharpie on the football and I gave it to my not even two-year-old Turner. Many of you know Turner, he's 15 now. And we practiced. I was like, take the ball to mama, take the ball to Uncle Jeff, or you know, Uncle David. And, take, and then, and I, you know who Eli is, right? You know, he knew who Eli was. And so we practiced, I felt really good about the plan. After the wedding, he's sitting on a couch with some friends. There's a table with some drinks in front of it. And I, it, I said, Turner, take the ball to Eli. And he toddles up to that, that table. But instead of going around to Eli, he decides he's going to throw the ball, hits every drink on that table, and Eli is covered with all kinds of colored liquids all over on, on the wedding night. And I was just thinking, this is not the way it was supposed to go. And Eli chewed my butt. And no, I'm just kidding. He was super nice. He, he, he picked up the ball and said, uh, he wrote two Turner, nice throw. <laughs> Eli Manning. But I was thinking, we had prepared, like we had done this so many times. The results were always the same, they were good. Why now, when I do it, when it counts, were the results that I, clearly I felt like would be there because of all the practice, why were they not there? Well, the reason is because it laboratory, like formulas, they work in a laboratory when there are no variables, but often in real life, that's not how it works. There are other variables. And if we approach our faith like a formula and ignore our heart's disposition, then it's not only prideful to trust in the way that we're going to do this thing and that, that God is supposed to give us those results, it's actually sinful. And I think this is why Mark's, in Mark's account, he says 
that to do what they're trying to do, it had to be accompanied by prayer. He's talking about their heart. You, you, you need me in this. Like, like you did this thing on your own, but you needed to bring God into this thing. And their prayer shows, their, la- their lack of prayer shows their lack of reliance on God. And it says something about their disposition toward God. They had turned this part of their Christian life into a formula, and it does not go well because that kind of formulaic thinking in the Christian life is sinful. It is fueled by a sense that we're in control. It's fueled by a sense that we can make things happen. And it's essentially fueled by a belief deep down, whether we'll admit it or not, that we are essentially gods over our own lives deciding what we're going to do to get the results that we want. But another danger in this is to equate relying on God and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit with worldly success. They they, they don't always go together. There, There are times we see where people aren't walking in the power of the Spirit, and it seems to be going well, worldly for them, and people who really depend on the Lord, and humanly speaking, things aren't going well. It's, again, it's not a formula that you can always put together for success, for the desired outcome. I was with a pastor last year, a pastor who in his late 20s, early 30s, became a Christian celebrity pastor, which is a, there's no reason for a pastor to ever become any kind of celebrity, this would be oxymoronic, but but he was writing books and they were selling off the shelf and thousands of people were coming to his church. And he said to a group of people, I went years during that time without ever opening the Bible for my own benefit. And you fast forward and now things are really hard at church. There are really hard things in his life. But he says, I have a dependence on the Lord that I've never had before and I wouldn't trade the joy that I have in that with all the worldly success that I had back then. So we'd have to be careful to go to one of those two extremes. And we need to be on guard against the way that we can turn our faith into a formula in, in a lot of different ways. Because when, when we do this, we're, we're developing a mechanical relationship with God at best, and at worst, declaring essentially that He exists to serve us. I mean, that, that's not how the Christian life is designed to work. If we turn the Christian life into a formula, then we're either going to become insufferably prideful or thrown into despair. One of the two. We're going we're to be prideful when we like the results. We're going to go into despair when we don't like the results. And I don't think there's any aspect of the Christian life that I've seen this play out more consistently in my own life and in the life of others as parenting. You know, because we think there are biblical principles to raising children, but we begin to think, if I can do these things, then I should get a godly child on the other side of this. Or, or what we're also saying is, if I can do these things, then God owes me a godly child on the other side of this. But that's, that's, again, just turning it into a formula. If I school this way, if I memorize these verses, whatever, whatever I choose to do with my kids, if our hope is in what we're doing, then we're creating a formula. And some people, they have their first kid and it seems to go well, but then they have their second kid and you think same genetics, same home, should work the same, and this is a totally different kid. And nothing that worked with the first kid seems to be working with the second kid. And if we're, 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 if we're frustrated and enforcing even strong, more strongly the things that we did with the first kid on the second kid, then we're creating a formula. 
and we're interacting with God out of our own works, out of our own flesh, and not being reliant upon the power of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives. And as a result, we're going to be prideful if we like the results, and we're going to be despairing if we don't. But when we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, reliant on Him, then whether it goes well or doesn't, we won't be prideful, but we'll be sustained when things don't go the way that we want them to go. That's what sin produces. And the ultimate result of unrepentant sin is eternal destruction. So if sin produces pride, despair, death, and destruction, then what then is the antidote? Like, How can we be saved from it? What is saving faith? Well, we need to go to the source of our faith. And the source of our faith is Jesus. So did you notice that that what Jesus says, he commands them, bring him to me, bring the child to me, which pretty much sums up Jesus's call in our life. Come to me, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Come to me, I I am the truth, the life. I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I have come to call the sick, not the righteous. All throughout Jesus's ministry, the message is come to me, come to me. So the issue here, when it comes to faith, it isn't the quantity of faith, it's the object of faith. That's what Jesus is trying to get at here with this mustard talk. But before we get there, mustard seed. So how do we take what Jesus is saying, though, and process it through some seemingly really harsh words? Jesus seems very frustrated in verse 17. And Jesus answered them, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And I know if you're a Gen Z or a millennial, you're like, oh, Jesus sounds like a crusty old man here. You know, that that younger generation, they don't have the work ethic that we had. They would have never taken Normandy. They eat too much avocado toast. That that, that's not what's going on here. If you put all the accounts together, Jesus is frustrated by everything everyone in this passage of all age levels. It's, it's the whole generations that are there together at that time. In Mark's account, we can see that his anger is directed to the scribes and the crowds. So in Mark's account, when they came off the mountain and they're approaching the disciples, there's a crowd and they could see that the scribes are arguing with the disciples. And the feeling you get from the way that Mark describes it is that the scribes were almost taunting the disciples for being unable to heal this person. They show no compassion on the father, no compassion on the boy, and they seem to be relishing in the failure of the disciples to be able to heal this boy. I mean, the the people that God had given to minister and show compassion to his people were now taking joy in their pain and their suffering. So it makes sense that this would make Jesus mad, that this would frustrate Jesus. And really, everybody in this passage, except Jesus, of course, the disciples included, they show some lack of faith. We've, We've looked at the disciples, we've looked at the crowd, but then we even have the Father. The Father comes... And he asked Jesus to heal the boy if you can. Here's the account in Mark 9. But if you can, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. Now, I read that with the exclamation mark. The exclamation mark wasn't in the original. 
so we, we don't know the exact tone. I actually, given the pain that this father is experiencing, I picture maybe more of a question mark, like a, you know, a tilted head and a squinted eyes, like, if I can? Like come, I, I, it's a rebuke, but there's an encouragement there. That's the way I, I picture Jesus saying it. But the father is at least trusting Jesus for, the, for something that Jesus has in spades. He's trusting him for compassion. He believes Jesus has compassion. And in verse 18, Jesus heals him. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Do you see the picture here? Come to Jesus and be saved. Come to Jesus and be healed. Now, can he heal us physically in this world? Yes, I've seen some amazing, supernatural things happen. But that isn't the primary purpose of Jesus' ministry. The primary purpose of Jesus' ministry is to heal us spiritually, and the end result is that we're going to have resurrected bodies that won't have any flaws, and we will be eternally healed physically, but it's more than that. It's reuniting us with our Creator, with the source of our faith, who heals us in every conceivable way. We can have you know, a terminal illness and be healed only to die again, but what Jesus is bringing here is something of eternal value. Our greatest problem, the main barrier to our faith is sin, and this is what Jesus has come to fix, and he did that by living the life that we could never live, going to the cross and dying in our place, taking on the wrath of God in our place, and then clothing us with his righteousness. That's his primary mission. That's the primary way he came to save us. And in the most compassionate act, we see the, not only the character, which this father seemed to recognize, but the power that he did not in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So what about this mustard seed? Well, it gets back to the issue is not quantity, but it's the object of our faith, the source of our faith that matters. That's what the disciples had gotten wrong. And in using the analogy of a mustard seed, this is the smallest seed in the garden. Now it produces one of the larger bushes, but he's talking about the smallest seed. And so it can't be about quantity of faith. You know, think about it like if you're lost in a forest, it's a dark, creepy forest, it's night, you can't see anything, you've wandered for miles, you have no idea where you are, your phone's not working, you hear noises that you don't know where, what it is, where they're coming from, you're genuinely concerned, and you walk upon a park ranger. And the park ranger says, hey, I'm, I basically grew up in this forest, I know it like the back of my hand, if you follow me, I'll get you home. How much faith does it take to trust that park ranger, just enough to say, okay, I'll go. That's all it takes, that's not that much. You're just enough to agree to go. You can still have all kinds of doubts and questions and concerns, but it's just enough faith to say, okay, I'll go. And the result, if you know, as you follow this park ranger and you begin to see, oh, he really knows where we're going, he seems confident, he, we had to stay overnight, he built a hut out of sand and there was this bear that came and he killed it with a knife, like, all right, now, now, now I'm really confident in this guy. So you see the faith growing like the mustard seed, but the beginning point that Jesus is talking about is just enough to go. Even if we don't know where he's leading us, even if we don't know how, even if we don't, don't know why we're in these circumstances, just enough to trust him 
because we know that he has already come and lived and died and resurrected for us. Just enough trust to say, I'll try that. I'll go with you. I love this line. I stared at it a lot this week. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. Is there a phrase that describes more adequately the mission of the triune God to pursue us? God the Father, separated from us by a chasm, a bottomless chasm of our sin, declares, bring him to me. God the Son, through his life, death, and resurrection, builds a bridge across that chasm, but we still don't even know to go. So God the Holy Spirit breathes life into us, puts us up on our feet, and compels us to walk across. Bring him to me. The mustard seed was the smallest, and Jesus, by using it, isn't indicting the quantity of their faith. It isn't a lack of the right, it isn't, isn't, you have the right kind of faith, but just not enough. It's a misapplication of the faith. So the scribes, the crowd, the disciples, and the Father had faith in what they could do or despaired in what they couldn't do, which in itself is a misapplication of faith. And Jesus is simply saying, redirect your faith. Direct your faith to the proper source, which is Jesus. And then, when we do that, then we can see the power of our faith. And the power of our faith is that we can see truly supernatural things happen. Verse 19 and 20. It's kind of the end of 19 and then 20. The disciples asked, why why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a, a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, this is another one of those interesting prosperity preacher texts that, you know, if you have enough faith, nothing's impossible, and you should be, if you have enough faith, you should not have physical ailments. And many of you know this story, when my wife had cancer in her 20s, a young man told me that it was because she didn't have enough faith, which almost resulted in him not having enough teeth. But this kind of junk is drawn from passages like that, and this is not what Jesus is teaching. Remember, it's the object of our faith that Jesus is talking about, not the quantity of our faith. And if our faith is in the God of the Bible, then it can produce supernatural things, not because our faith is so great, but because the source, the object of our faith, God, is so great. And then when we have the correct object, over time in relationship with him, our faith does absolutely grow. All right, so the question then is what are these mountains? What's going on? Because I'm not aware of anybody in the Bible or in all of the history of the church who has ever actually moved a mountain with their faith. We we have to address that. Well, I feel pretty certain both, I'm I'm gonna draw here from Tom Schreiner uh, mainly, but the phrase moving mountains, it was a proverbial phrase that you can see at least in three times in Isaiah for overcoming our difficulties. And so what Jesus is doing here is creating an illustration by talking about these, these mountains. Jesus is showing us that supernatural things happen if we have faith. So what kinds of supernatural things could we expect? Can God do 
things like healing us and, and just miracles outside of what we normally see? Yes, but that doesn't mean we can expect those things. The kinds of things we should expect are the things that God tells us that we should expect from His Word. Faith is believing that God will do what He has promised to do. So what are those things? They don't include physical healing. I mean, Paul, he, he had the, proverb, the, the, the thorn, whatever that was, the metaphorical thorn, and he asked God to remove it, and God said no. And I don't think it's because Paul didn't have faith the size of, size of a mustard seed. Timothy had stomach problems, and God didn't decide to supernaturally heal it. That's why Paul had to say, well, you need to drink some wine for your indigestion. But in Luke's account of the story, he says that those who have faith like a mustard seed, they are going to be able to forgive brothers and sisters who sin against them repeatedly. I mean, forgiveness is one of the hardest things that we can do when we have been wronged. It's painful and it can often feel as impossible as moving a mountain. But there are promises for that in Scripture. Mustard seed faith is the kind of faith that that kills the works of the flesh, and it produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, these are the mountains that can only be moved by faith. And mustard seed faith believes that when we share the gospel with somebody, they can believe we, that, that God is not our sharing, but we believe that God can actually change the hardest of hearts. There are promises to that end. And the evidence of mustard seed faith, it isn't the kinds of healings and things we see on TV, it's how we love God and our neighbor. That's the evidence of mustard seed faith. Our greatest enemies are inside of us. Those are the proverbial mountains that need to be moved, our anger, our addiction, our lust, our vengeance inside of us, the loneliness, the doubt, the emptiness that consumes us. Faith in Jesus moves those mountains by giving us victory over our own sin and access to His Holy Spirit. So, I'll finish with this test. Maybe the best way to test if you are placing your faith in your efforts or your Savior isn't by asking what I believe in a theological sense, but asking how it is that I feel about what I believe. Because Jesus isn't just staying in the head here, He's going to the heart. And even more specifically, how do we feel about our Heavenly Father? So, so the question isn't, am I a legalist, you know, in a theological sense, but does my disposition reflect my trust in the Father, or does my disposition reflect that I'm fundamentally trusting in my own efforts? So there's an incredible book by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ. And the forward is actually written by Tim Keller, and he summarizes this really well in the forward. He says, a legal spirit consists in part of how you feel towards God. This legal spirit is marked by jealousy, oversensitivity to slights, metallic harshness toward mistakes, and an ungenuous, ungenerous, that was a tough word, ungenerous default mode in decision making. And then by contrast, Ferguson provides a helpful summary of a gospel disposition. He says, walking in love is so much a hallmark of regeneration that it confirms the presence of faith. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So this obviously isn't a way to say we're saved 
by the way that we love other peoples, but it, it is a way of saying that we are saved by such a supernatural love that it can't help but spill over into other people around us. So if you're here today and you're wondering, do I have enough faith? You know, you're, you're working to muster up enough faith for something. This text, I think, tells us that we're asking the wrong question. The question is, do I have enough love to share? And if the answer is no, the question is, is are my eyes set on the source? Are they set on the object? Because when they are, there are promises for us that our love should grow, that we will have help. So the, the wedding that I did yesterday, most weddings, I, I try and communicate that what we're witnessing here is, it is a reenactment of sorts, of the gospel. And, and we are going to be brought one day to a wedding that is so rich and it is so intimate that the only way we know how to describe it is to look at the love of a bride and a groom on their wedding day and say, there, something like that is the way that Jesus loves his church. Something like that is the wedding that we're being called to. And that wedding starts with just a mustard seed faith that by God's grace, he's the one that shows it to us, he's the one that, that causes it to flourish, and he's the one that calls us to that wonderful wedding at the end of time. These are all promises that we see in this passage, and so our prayer is that we would not be walking out of our own flesh, out of our own power, but that we would have a deep reliance on God. It's easier in the big things, because we know we don't, but even, we know we don't, we can't do certain things, but especially in the smaller things, to recognize when we think we have this under our own control, when we think that we're ultimately sufficient to get the results that we want. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the call in this chapter and the blessing of this story that you call us to a relationship with you, to have faith in you, and it isn't that we have to have some sort of regimen where we can work up to enough faith and then be accepted. You just ask for the smallest bit of faith, and that bit of faith you give us. And then you sanctify us through your Holy Spirit. So I pray that the reality of this would sink deep down into the soil of our hearts and produce fruit, fruit that would be displayed in loving each other because we have our eyes on the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. God, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.